turn your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 48. We'll read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 22. This is the inerrant, inspired, and authoritative word of the true and living God. Genesis 48, beginning with verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you have fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the, by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Potom, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, uh, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my father, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, 
I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, uh, rather than your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Let's pray. Father, as we have read your word, and so in utter dependence upon you, we ask that you would be our teacher. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. For those of you who are visiting, we are making our way through the book of Genesis, um, one passage at a time, and we are nearing the end um, The because the, the time is late. Let's just jump right into the passage. When Joseph heard his father was ill, he brought his two sons to Jacob in order for him to bless them. But Jacob had a couple of surprises, as we've just heard, uh, for Joseph. First of all, Jacob adopted Manasseh and Ephraim as his own children. You see that in verse 5. So instead of being Jacob's grandchildren, they now have become Jacob's children. And even more surprisingly, they have become Jacob's firstborn children. These two children that were born last have become first. They've displaced Reuben and Simeon. Manasseh and Ephraim became first, while Reuben and Simeon have become last. If you were to look at the land allotments given to the twelve tribes, you would see that Manasseh and Ephraim, they are, they are right in the middle of the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan. They have two of the largest allotments of land. Um, but Reuben and Simeon, they're on the outskirts. Reuben is actually on the east side of the Jordan River, down toward the, the southeast. And Manasseh is down south of Judah, down near the Dead Sea, down in the, the Arabah, the dry, uh, arid uh, desert regions. Reuben and Simeon acted wickedly. We saw that as we moved through the book of, uh, of Genesis. And so God moved their inheritance to the end of the list. First Chronicles 5.1 says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the son of Joseph, I mean, to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be allotted or enrolled as the oldest son. So that was the first surprise. He adopted Joseph's sons as his own. The second surprise was that jo- Jacob crossed his arms when he went to bless Joseph's sons. Uh, so Manasseh, who was the firstborn, ended up becoming the secondborn, while Ephraim, the secondborn, they had all the rights of the firstborn. Uh, why did Jacob do this? We don't know. There's no logical reason given 
for Jacob to elevate Ephraim over Manasseh. There's only one reason that we can know for sure why uh, Jacob did this. Jacob was declaring the will of God. Our God is sovereign. He does not act according to human traditions. God exalts the unlikely. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He didn't exalt the wise or the philosophers or the rich or the strong. He exalted the weak, the unwise, the poor. God is free to act according to His will. He is not bound by any created being. He is not bound by any human convention or tradition. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God occasionally chose the younger over the older. He chose Abel over Cain. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. And so now here in our passage, He has chosen Ephraim over Manasseh. The question this sermon begs to, to uh, begs for us to answer is why did God do this? This pattern of making the last to be first ended up becoming very important to Jesus. And I think by looking at how Jesus taught about the last becoming first, we'll gain some insight into the mind of God and why why uh, God had Jacob exalt Ephraim over Manasseh. And so the first instance that we'll look at of this uh, idea of the last becoming first uh, appears in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, a young rich man approached Jesus and he asked, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course you know what happened. He went away sad because he loved his riches. But it raised a question amongst the disciples. And Peter, who uh, once a thought was in his mind, it was quick to leave his tongue. Uh, so he, he asked um, uh, Jesus a question in verse 27. And so uh, here's the question and, and Jesus' answer. And notice how Jesus used the principle of the last becoming first in verse 30. So Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And you can just imagine Peter here is thinking of all the riches that he might have that he might have waiting on him because he has uh, given up so much in order to follow Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus' reply here to Peter's question is, has, has two points to it. First of all, there's an encouragement, but there's also a warning. And so the encouragement is that um, Christians will never be losers. Christianity involves saying no to worldliness. It means rejecting many of the pleasures and excesses that many take for granted. 
The rich young man was will, was unwilling to say no to these things in order that he might follow Jesus. But Jesus is telling Peter that no service that we make for him or for his kingdom will involve loss. He promises that whatever sacrifice we make for his sake will be repaid 100-fold. And on top of that, he says, we also will inherit eternal life. Rest assured, none of you who are followers of Jesus Christ will find yourself a loser in the long run. In Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus said to those even who would be persecuted, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I know some of you have suffered because of your Christian faith. I know that all of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus have said no to worldliness, said no to other things that others are enjoying. Some of you have had uh, false reports spread, spread about you because of your Christianity. Some of you have been called foolish. Some of you have lost family members because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, whatever sacrifice we make for His sake, will be repaid 100-fold. And I think the reason Jesus says 100-fold is to show us that this is not uh, tit for tat. That, that we, by our suffering, are earning anything for God. In other words, we make this amount of suffering, therefore we receive this amount of blessing. Or we have, we've, we've, we've given up this much, therefore we, we gain this much. No. What he's saying here is regardless of your suffering, what you have is a hundredfold waiting on you. It's all of grace. We're never, God is never under our obligation. But the warning is found in verse 30. Many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. Or I think he actually says it the, uh, the opposite way. The warning is that Christianity is not a get-rich-in-the-long-run scheme. Christianity is not about the riches that we will receive. Christianity is not about getting possessions or even getting eternal life. Christianity is about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Christianity is about faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus Christ. All the suffering. He'll make all that right. You don't have to worry about making it right. He'll make it right. When Jesus said, but many who are first will be last and the last first, He was saying in effect that death is the great equalizer. We like to think, um, unfortunately, that uh, our level of comfort in this world is a sign of our faithfulness to God. But why are you living a blessed life? Well, because I'm, because I'm faithful to God. And so I'm living a happy, blessed life. Rarely any cares in the world because I'm faithful to God. 
That is stinking thinking. Because some of the most faithful people who have ever followed Jesus Christ have had some have had to endure some of the worst suffering. Christian, in fact, who lives a relatively easy and comfortable life on earth will by, by no means be blessed more than a Christian who has suffered greatly. Who's going to be closer to the throne of God? A Christian who has lived in this century, in this country, relatively free from suffering? Or that widow who gave the last two pennies she had because she trusted and loved her Savior. The point is, Jesus is saying that He is sufficient. You trust Him, you have everything you need in this life and in the life to come. Those who are, who are used to being first in this life they'll be last. Those who are typically used to being last, they'll be first. Jesus went on to expand upon His answer in the very next passage in Matthew 20, verses 1-16. through It's a longer passage. It's always profitable to hear the Word of God. Matthew 20, verses 1-16. through For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And and to them he said, Go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth, ninth hour, he did the same. About the eleventh hour, he also went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a a denarius. When those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, The last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. I am not am I not allowed to do uh, what I chose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This parable strikes at the root of our pride. If we think that our sacrifices for God make God love us more. We're mistaken. If we think that the length of our service in Christ's kingdom God makes God love us more, we are mistaken. If we think the length of our service or our spiritual gifting uh, makes any of us more important than others in the church, then we are mistaken. 
God gives generously, or God generously gives us Himself and all of His promises that are yes and amen to us in Christ. And that is all we need. The thief on the cross who only trusted in Christ for a matter of minutes, maybe an hour or two, before he uh, died and and was um, in paradise. He was just as righteous as the, the saint who lived for months, years, decades, um, trusting in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, it's not about what you've done. God is never in debt to you. He gives us Himself and His promises. That's all we need. There are many other applications to this parable. But I'm trying to limit our consideration to the concept of the last becoming first. I believe this parable teaches us not to think too highly of ourselves. We like to fancy ourselves better than others. We like to think of ourselves more theologically oriented than believers in other denominations. We like to think maybe that we're smarter than others. But everything we have comes from the generosity of our Master. It comes from God. There is no room for pride. There is no room for us to think that that God is in debt or in obligation to us. The obligation He has to us is an obligation that He placed upon Himself. The next passage we will consider is a lot shorter than the previous. Um, And it tells us how we should should view ourselves in relation to others. This is Mark 9.33-37. And they, the they being Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum. And when He was in the house, He asked them, uh, this Jesus. Um, when Jesus was in the house, He asked the disciples, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And He sat down and called the twelve. Then He said to them, Notice here, He doesn't rebuke them. Although they were certainly in line for a good tongue lashing. Instead, He teaches them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in His arms, He said to them, Whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives not Me, but him who sent Me. Now, in the passage immediately before this, earlier in Mark 9, Jesus had been teaching about His sacrificial death uh, and about um, Him being the servant and and laying down His life. Um, He's teaching about His death and His resurrection, about the consummation of His kingdom. And so, instead of causing the disciples to, to be intrigued by Christ's glory, they began to think of what position they would have in Christ's kingdom. And who would be the greatest? Who would have the the place of highest honor? Can you imagine a more pitiable or pitiful contrast? Jesus is talking about dying on the cross. And they're talking about which of them is the greatest. And I don't think it should should surprise us. Because the yearning to be great dwells in every human heart. 
I bet most of you daydream. What do you daydream about? I bet many of us daydream about um, uh, circumstances where we might find ourselves, where we might be in a great position with a lot of honor and acclaim. And it exposes our hearts. We, we yearn to receive honor and attention. But Jesus says this is upside down thinking. Jesus said to the disciples, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. In other words, being great in Christ's kingdom means humility. Being great in Christ's kingdom means rejecting self-interest. Um, being great in Christ's kingdom means self-sacrifice. Someone has said, He is greatest in Christ's eyes who loves best and serves most. J.C. Ryle said, Flesh and blood can see no other way to greatness but crowns and rank and wealth and high position in the world. The Son of God declares that the way to greatness lies in devoting ourselves to the care of the weakest and the lowest of His flock. And this is what Jesus meant by bringing this child into the middle of the disciples. Um, because a child cannot care for itself. It's utterly dependent upon others. And so Jesus' message to the disciples and also to us is that we must make especially sure that we are serving the weakest among us. It's easy to cultivate friendships with people who are going to give us something, who are going to meet our needs, who can help us elevate ourselves. To cultivate friendships with people who can do things for us. Jesus says no. First of all, you, you cultivate friendships and you love those who are the weakest and you serve them. That is what it means to be great in Christ's kingdom. I've been particularly impressed by our new crop of deacons, uh, Bill Peck and William Matthew. I don't see William here this morning. Is he here? Ah, oh, he's up top. Oh. Um, they are not only eager to serve, uh, are not only willing to serve, but eager to serve those who need help. They, along with Ed Allen, have been doing a lot of work behind the scenes, um, helping people who, frankly, just need a hand. Um, we only have three deacons right now that are serving officially on the diaconate. Uh, we have other deacons that are serving uh, in different ways. Uh, um, I, could, I, could, I could begin to list um, many ways that those deacons who are not serving are serving faithfully right now, even though they're not on the diaconate. But with only three deacons, if Bill or William or Ed should approach you and ask you for some help, especially in serving others, don't refuse them. They need the help. And I think they, in asking you, will be helping you to be great in the kingdom of heaven as you serve others. And then the last passage uh, we read responsively, that w the last passage we're going to consider uh, from Luke 13, since we read it, I'm going to skip over it. Um, in fact, um, so I'm going to move on to point two and point three very, very quickly. 
as we've been considering what Jesus says about the last becoming first, it's important to remember that Christ is called the last Adam. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do. Uh, Adam represented all mankind. We fell in his fall. And Christ, the second Adam, lived a perfect life, obeyed all of God's commandments perfectly uh, from the heart. And He died a sacrificial death in our place. And thus, He provided salvation, a salvation for us that Adam forfeited. And actually, Christ's salvation that He purchased for us is infinitely better than anything Adam could have done by His continued obedience. In other words, Christ, the last Adam, is far superior to the first Adam. Hence, Christ, the last Adam, has received the place of the, the place of, the, the, the first place, the place of honor. And Christ's supremacy reaches beyond the first Adam. Colossians 1, uh, verse 18 says that Christ is superior to everything. Christ is the first. He is the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, Jesus, or the Apostle John writes, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead, but He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the, de- the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 2.8 And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, and this is Jesus talking, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And then Revelation 22.13 Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. As we are considering the last becoming first, really what we are considering is He who is the first and the last. Because He is the one who exalts Jacob. When He crossed His arms and pronounced that blessing, um, declaring Ephraim to be the firstborn, Manasseh being uh, second, and so switching them. The book of Hebrews says it, it commends him for his faith, and the only faith, the only act in Jacob's life that the book of Hebrews commends him for is this blessing, which is surprising to me. But what this teaches us is that Jacob was declaring the will of God, and Joseph's job then was to receive it by faith to receive it as the Word of God. Although Joseph was initially upset, he did receive it. Final application. Christ, the firstborn from among the dead. Christ, the first and the last. The beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. He determines our life. He determines our blessings. He determines our sufferings. He determines the the riches that we will receive. He determines everything in our life. The question is, do you trust Him and so put yourself last and the servant of all? Or is it your main goal? to put yourself first and grab everything that this life has to offer.
In other words, life and death is put before you. The, Genesis, uh, the Luke 13 passage that we read responsively. A call to faith. A call to trust. A call to enter through the narrow door. A call to trust in Christ the Alpha and the Omega. Do you trust in yourself? Do you trust in riches? Do you trust in other human, human beings? Or do you trust in Christ? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship You as the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord over our, ever, over our very souls, the Lord over our future, the Lord over our past, the Lord over our families, the Lord over our desires. We flee to You now. Give us more faith that we might more fully trust ourselves to You. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.